to all the people who are fighting for the broken, all the people who keep holding on to love, all the people who are reaching for the lonely. Keep changing the world, sings Mike's Chairs. We hear at Solutions to Violence, along with our guests today, Leah Bulger and Phil Giddens from World Beyond War, are also interested in changing the world. Folks, you're listening to Solutions to Balance, and we're so glad you could join us on Forward Radio WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions to Balance is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. Views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. It's our pleasure to welcome our guests today, President of the World Beyond War Board of Directors, Leah Rolger, and World Beyond War's Educational Director and Peace Ambassador of the Institute for Economics and Peace, Dr. Phil Gittins. Welcome, Leah and Phil, to Solutions to Violence. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Pleasure to be here also. Leah Bolger currently serves as president of the World Beyond War Board of Directors. She retired from the U.S. Navy at the rank of commander from 20 years of active service. She was elected as the first woman president of Veterans for Peace in 2012 and in 2013 was selected to present the Ava Helen and Linus Pauling Memorial Peace Lecture at Oregon State University. Following a trip to Pakistan to meet with drone victims, she created the Drones Quilt Project. Leah founded the Corvallis Chapter of Veterans for Peace in 2006 and the Corvallis branch of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. That was in January 2014. We interviewed Leah in 2018 right here on Solutions to Violence. Phil Giddings, PhD, is World Beyond War's Education Director. He has 15 plus years programming, analysis, and leadership experience in the areas of peace, education, and youth. He has particular expertise in context-specific approaches to peace programming, peace building, building education, and youth inclusion in research and action. Phil has lived, worked, and traveled in over 50 countries across six continents. He's taught in schools, colleges, and universities in eight countries and led experiential training and training of trainers for hundreds of individuals and peace and conflict processes. He works with youth offending prisons, oversight management for youth, community projects, and consultation for public and nonprofit organizations on peace, education, and youth issues. Phil is a peace ambassador for the Institute of Economics and Peace. He also holds postgraduate qualifications in peace and conflict studies, education training, and teaching in higher education. He is also certified as a neuro-linguistic programmer, practitioner, counselor, and project manager by training. Both Leah and Phil are full-time peace activists. Leah and Phil, what makes a World Beyond War different from other organizations? What kind of work are, are you doing? Well, Jamie, World Beyond War began back in a, about 2014 when David Hartsoe, who is a lifelong peace activist, he's a, Qua- a Quaker, he wrote a, a bio- autobiography called Waging Peace. And David Hartsoe read a book written by David Swanson, who is an author, extensive author, a radio host, it, just an extraordinary person all around. And David's book was called uh, No More War. And the point of the, David's book was not that we need to have an active anti-war protest movement, but, but rather that we need to address abolishing the institution of war and not looking about just the war of the day, whatever is the most, you know, talked about 
conflict of the of the current moment. So the idea was to address the institution of war, and it had to be international because the problem of war is so great. Of course, it's going to take a massive coordinated effort to end war. So the idea was that World Beyond War would be more than an organization. It would uh, be the catalyst or the vehicle for creating a, a global movement to end war. And so I think that's a little bit different from most organizations that I know of. And it's it, the kind of work we do is planning to transition from the world that we have today, where uh, it, it's based on war and the threat of war or the threat of economic sanctions, to one that's based on international diplomacy and rule of law and uh, mediation. So we've written a book, we call it our, our blueprint. It's called The Alternative Global Security System, and it kind of outlines a three-part strategy for doing that. And the first part is called demilitarizing security, all the things that have to be done to lessen the tensions and, and proliferation of weapons in the world. The second part is developing methods to resolve conflict. And the third part is building a culture of peace. So it's uh, those are the three general areas. And we accomplish these things by through two uh, basic methods or, or whatever categories I would say is one is action and the other is education. And so Phil can tell you a lot more about what we do with education. Yeah, do you want me to jump in now and talk a little bit about what we do? Yeah, so so uh, as Leah mentioned, um, yeah, our work revolves around what we call, you know, the AGSS, um, an alternative global security system, a global security system, an alternative to war. But the question is, how do we go about putting that into practice? How do we go about making this, this vision a reality? If you look more broadly at social change, there's a large agreement that uh, both reflection and action, so Paolo Freire would talk about praxis. So um, that's the combination of both education and action are needed to bring about change in the world. So while action is necessary, it's not sufficient. While education is necessary, it's not sufficient. They both need to work hand in hand. So talking about the educational part, the, the question is, well, how do we educate people for to move towards a world beyond war and to move away from the war system towards a peace system where peace can be pursued by peaceful means? The way in which we approach this task is that we rely a lot on the people, that the wonderful people that we work with on the ground that are doing the great grassroots movement work on the ground. So um, we run online courses. We ran four last year, which are generally six weeks and takes people through the processes of understanding the detrimental effects of the war system on people and the planet more broadly, and then provides them with tools to how can they engage in action and how can they engage in non-violent direct action organizing. So four courses with different names that we run last year. We, we've um, run one already this year, which was called War Abolition 101. Um, we try, we try and get a, a great kind of diversity in terms of the participants as well as the facilitators. And I can say a little bit more about that if, if that would be helpful. But the last course, the youngest that I know of was 30. 
13. The oldest that I know of was 94. So how about that for intergenerational collaboration? <laughs> we had people from South Sudan, from Cameroon, from, from all different parts of the world. And it's a wonderful kind of learning laboratory to bring people together of different ages, from different, like, different places, different spaces around the world, to really think through some of the, the questions that we try and grapple with on the course. So that was last, that was the last course. We're now starting a course in, um, yeah, just under a week's time on the 7th of June, and it's called War in the Environment. And that's our six-week course, and uh, happily talk about that a little bit more if that would be helpful as well. So, okay, Leah Bozer, Phil Giddens, you are both activists, as you pointed out, Phil, you're both activists and organizers. How do you distinguish between activism and organizing? Well, Jim, I, I think uh, just like Phil explained that education and, uh, and activism go hand in hand, or you can't really have one without the other. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship. I kind of think uh, activism and organizing share that same uh, idea. Um, I think organizing is planning. It's it's bringing people and resources together um, to and to build momentum by focusing on an issue and and bringing those things together. And activism is is carrying out the plan. It's it's doing something as active as of course means, and they can it, activism. You know, I think people writing letters to the editor is an act of activism. It, it it doesn't have to be a big protest or going to jail or or that kind of thing. So activism can be done at any level by anyone. And organizing, I think people, some people are much better at organizing than others. And I have to put in kudos to um, our organizing director Greta. Zaro, who's just a fantastic organizer, and our newest hire, uh, Rachel Small, who is a Canadian organizer. You know, in fact, Greta is so good at organizing that we have branched out to Canada, and we have so many things going on in Canada. We need a, a person just for that country. So we are hopeful. Or our, our vision is that eventually, countries all over the world will have their own organizer, a World Beyond War organizer. And so that's our vision. We're working for that. Yeah, maybe I can kind of just touch on that as well. Um, actually, yeah. Yesterday, I was on a call, um, webinars, and we were talking about systems and systems thinking. And one example put forward, and Leah could talk about this a lot more than me, but was the military, you know, that's such an organized, strategic, thought through kind of process, right? The peace movement can learn so much from that way of organizing, but obviously do it in non-violent ways. So uh, Leah was talking there about um, many different ways in which activism can show up. If you follow Gene Sharp's work, the great Gene Sharp, he listed 198 different ways of bringing about nonviolent action. So there is so many different ways. And, and like Leah said, you know, Greta and Rachel are great examples of how they use creativity in their work. And it's one thing standard across the board that's needed in peacebuilding work is creativity, you know, to move us away from the, the, the current system that we have to, to um, you know, the peace system that we want to try and bring about. So I guess that was one of the things that I, I would add. And, and another thing about, um, I actually love, yeah, the, the explanation that Leah gave there about the difference between organizing and, and activism. I often think of kind of Martin Luther King. Okay, so Martin Luther King, we often remember Martin Luther King, I have a dream. And I spoke about this yesterday, actually, in another webinar. So he had a dream. We don't always remember Martin Luther King just because he said, I have a dream. We remember him because he was very strategic and he was very organized and put into vision this image that he had of a better world or tried to work towards this image. Right. And that require 
really strategic planning, strategic thinking, organized ways of bringing about change. So that is what's that's what's needed. Just acting alone is is not not always kind of um, it doesn't bring about the desired result. It needs to to go hand in hand, like Leah said, with regards to really strategic, organized thinking of what is this action we want to bring about and what is the desired world that we want as a result. Yeah. Yeah, there are there are similar but much worse challenges for other nations than the United States has, has experienced. Those those threats are like the COVID pandemic, war, uh, famine, environmental degradation, homelessness, terrorism, terrorism uh, military action, and war. With all these challenges for, for nations, what gives you encouragement and determination to have hope? For these nations? Well, just yesterday on Memorial Day, the Veterans for Peace New York City chapter organized a, a remarkable event where they had uh, people, civilians, and former military members from wars from all over the world Japan, Okinawa, Afghanistan, Palestine. And they spoke about their experience with war, um, very personal stories, being victims of firebombed and, and starvation that they went through. It just wrenching, heartbreaking stories, which really illustrated the the damage that war causes. And when on Memorial Day, I mean, the idea behind putting this together was to memorialize all the victims of war and not simply glorify the military members, the veterans. So my job, I was invited by Tarek Coffin, an incredible organizer from Veterans for Peace. I was invited. Uh, he said, Leah, um, we want to end this on a, on a positive note. And you're with World Beyond War. So I thought uh, you'd be perfect to do the, the positive message at the end. And so I did. And, um, and this is what I said, you know, even though it is daunting, and even though there are these stories that, that are so moving, and, and you, you, you just have a glimpse really of the horror of war, there are reasons to feel optimistic about uh, the future. And some examples are, you know, well, for one thing, there are vastly more number of countries who are not at war, who are at peace than who are at war. And if, you know, if, if war were a natural thing to happen, then we would all be warring with each other all the time. But war is not natural. The world wants peace and, and most of the countries are at peace. There are lots more, I think, more awareness now. I mean, you mentioned some of the things that have happened that are global. Uh, famine, pandemic, of course, this is a great uh, example. And I think that the world is now uh, understanding much better that it's a different place. We can communicate internationally I mean, Phil's in Bolivia right now, for heaven's sake. So it, we can communicate internationally and things are not so um, uh, exclusive problems to, to one country. Uh, we don't have a wall that can keep out COVID or a wall that can keep out climate change. And so there's this awareness and there's a, there's a, there really are a growing massive movement to fix these problems internationally. So, so that's, I think, a very positive sign. And I mean, here's another example. Um, it, just in my lifetime, you know, the, the change, a global movement for change with LGBTQ people uh, has, has been tremendous. And that's been from massive uh, coordinated organizing. So uh, let's see, another thing is we have now, we have 
entities or institutions to address war, um, namely the United Nations after World War II in 1948 was created. And the purpose of that was to help countries resolve their problems with, without violence. Uh, and so there, there are things like that that we can look to that, that uh, well, here's another one, the European Union. Here are, are countries that, that were fighting each other in World War II and now came together to form a coordinated, you know, entity that will help everyone in the European Union. So I think these kinds of things that we have to, we have to be positive about, we have to, it, we really don't have any choice. We, we, we can't, we can't continue to make progress uh, addressing these issues if, if we aren't maintaining some optimism and, and positivity. Yeah, just to kind of piggyback off of what Leah said. So if, if you, you were talking there about some crises that we're currently facing, so there's multiple crises that the world's currently facing, right? COVID being one, the, the crisis of uh, systemic um, racial injustice, you know, being another, but they're not existential crises. Other t- there's two existential crises that we're facing right now. One is the climate is climate change, and the other one is nuclear weapons. Both of them have their origins in or their roots in or or a deep connection with the war system. Uh, The nuclear weapon connection is pretty straightforward, you know, in terms of where the, the connection lies there between militarism, war and nuclear weapons. When you go to climate change, there's a real uh, and this obviously informs the course that we do as well. But the the connection between militarism and war and and, and climate change is pretty much well established. Also, if you took it, take a look, for example, at the US military, which is the biggest polluter on the planet and, and also the biggest institutional user of fossil fuels. So there's many making an argument that, you know, if we want to protect the planet, we have to take out the Pentagon. So that just gets us squared away, you know, but you were asking about hope. And I think Leah has uh, listed some great, great examples there. Um, I'm going to list a few others. So one is um, take a look at the work. And I know you you want to mention it. Take a look at the work of Stephen Pinker. OK, his, his first book, right, which basically argued that historically over time, time there's been a huge decline you know in the levels of violence and then he he's a very much he's a researcher a social social scientist and he he makes an argument well let's look at the data and then he started looking at the data at other things such as democracy such as health and and and, and other related issues uh, and then I, i'm sure you're aware of but his latest book is called enlightenment now which it, where he makes a case for science and reasoning over other ways of looking at life but the the book as a whole pretty much makes an argument that we've made massive improvements with regards to democracy with regards to uh, less countries fighting each other with regards to the gender pay gap as well with regards to the abolish, uh, abolition of uh, slavery of course we still have it you know in certain forms but not as it used to be so in pretty much every indicator in terms of human progress or human flourishing he makes an argument and backs it up with data statistics charts you know you name it that there's been massive progress over the years so there's one again um being my critical hat on there's things that you can critique about his arguments but the data is there you know and it's a proven academic harvard professor etc so there's one example another example we know that nonviolence works. We know that nonviolence is so much more effective than violence. Take a look at Erica Chenoweth and, and um, you know, her colleague book, Why Civil Resistance Works, where they looked at um, not violence versus nonviolent campaigns. 
uh, from, from 1900 to 2006, more than 300 cases, basically comes out and, and, and demonstrates, makes an argument for or indicates that nonviolence is twice as successful as violence in bringing about broader social change. And when we say broader social change, we're talking about making changes in the political structures or, or the, the, the government in power, etc. Well, then that asks the question, why is that the case? And one of the main reasons for that for the case is that it's so much more effective and it's so much more easier to mobilize people for change through non-violent means than violent means. So it, it's and and a big argument there is that they use this argument, uh, people power, you know, so much more easy to mobilize a, a huge amount of people. The other thing is um, to, to highlight as well is that, yeah, we're really good at peace. We are really, really good at peace. It's kind of like Leah said, you know, if we weren't, we'd be fighting each other all, all the time. So there, there's hope. Another thing to be aware of, though, as well, is that if you take a look at some research from the Institute for Economics at Peace, I'm an ambassador for, for them, or, or uh, the Alliance for Peace Building, there's arguments made that uh, we're now further away from peace than we've ever been in the last 10 years is one argument. Another argument that's made is that we're now at a 30-year high in terms of violence. So it depends what kind of lens you use and what kind of research you're looking at. So I try and look at things from different perspectives. Um, so, I, But I think it, it gets us kind of squared away with the challenges that we face. Although there's been great, great, great pr progress, there's still work to be done. I thought of something else that I failed to mention. The best example of international cooperation, a recent example, is the, the UN treaty to ban nuclear weapons. I mean, think about this, the international coordination and people-powered pressure that, that made this treaty come about internationally. And so this is, this is a really significant thing to, to show how, how the world is coming together to address these existential crises. One, one other thing just to just to add to that as well is that all, although, you know, people would make um, arguments that progress is being made in country and the world overall, it is in some research would make an argument that we're more we're more peaceful. Um, at the same time, there's an argument that's being made that the peace dividend is not being shared equally. So Leah mentioned about the European Union. Of course, that is a great incubator of framework institution in terms of bringing about peace. You know, it shows that, that the European Union is or the region of Europe is tending to be a lot more peaceful. But at the same time, other regions, particularly MENA and Africa, are um, showing decline in terms of peace. If you follow the Institute for the Economics of Peace, the leading methodology for measuring peace, they would make that argument based on the data. And they used 23 different indicators from different sources, UN, and, and a mix of qualitative, quantitative. And um, the results show that there's declines, particularly in certain regions. If we look at the mainland news, it, it typically shows us the destruction of cities, homes, and and infrastructure and, and, and death, of course, but, but rarely focuses on environmental consequences and, and the climate change related to war. Uh, World Beyond War is, is offering an online course now in June and July, this, this summer titled War and the Environment. Could you give us a, a premise on the design of the outline and what, what are the components of, uh, of uh, are being a part of it? Just before answering that as well, there's another thing that's really quite interesting, which, which is um, w worthwhile uh, thinking about now in our context versus the, the, the past, is that um, there's this idea of what uh, psychologists would call the availability heuristic. And what they mean by that is that when we see something, 
it tends to stick with us. So when we hear something, it tends to stick with us. So for example, if I say something to you, Rwanda, if I say to you, the Balkans, my guess is that you probably go back to Rwanda, you know, genocide. My guess is that you probably go back to Balkans and, and what happened then. But that, that's a long time ago. And if you look at Rwanda now, they're making make great progress in comparison to other African countries. And the reason why I say that is this availability heuristic is that if we see something, and this connects to hope and things like this, if we see something, we tend to think that that's the case more broadly, you know, so the media has a massive role to play in this, you know? So it's not news if I turn on the TV and Bolivia was in peace today, you know, the US was in peace today, you know, that's not, that's not kind of news, you know, per se, right? So what we need to do is kind of look at this idea of what, which Leah spoke about in the book, peace journalism, to try and highlight more effective approaches being used for, for you know, for peace work, rather than just focusing on what's happened with regards to war, you know, so that was just one thing that I kind of um, come into my mind. So with regards to the course, it's a six-week course starting on the 7th of June. Part of the overall focus or thinking behind this course is to is in one way to to provide a space co-create a space facilitate spaces for for bringing the peace movement and environmental movement together more and to work together more effectively so there's some great work being done already and there's more work to be done so part of the idea is that how can we get these both movements working together in a way that would widen the sphere of influence of both of the movements and maximize their impact um, so that was kind of a broader begin with the end in mind kind of, you know, part of the, the idea behind the course. So in terms of specifics, so it's six weeks and each of our courses have um, we invite a guest facilitator to to facilitate one of the weeks. We have an online learning platform. And what happens is that the participants and facilitators engage together in questions and, in, and engage inquiry around a broad kind of topic. So to give an example for the war in the environment course split into six weeks, the first week we'll look at um, a, a broad, a broad focus on where wars happen and why. So what are some of the underlying root causes of war? And of course, that brings it back to what Leah spoke about earlier, you know, the institution of war and how that um, keeps us in perpetual fear of, 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 of um, being attacked and, and then investments under the guise of we want to keep ourselves secure and, and, and safe, etc. So we look at really the idea of this, the war system. The second week is called What Wars Do to the Earth. Um, so this is looking at the connection between militarism and war and the detrimental effects that it has on the planet. Uh, one of the things that we highlight within the course is that we want to get away from this this idea of thinking about war is just things that happen out there in the global south, in South Sudan or Afghanistan, etc. We try and highlight that that war is something that happens before, during, and after. So before is the the ongoing preparations for war, which quite often take place in global north countries and particularly. Um, uh, the US, you know, um, and, and uh, of course the UK and, and, and other global North countries. So this is the, the ongoing war preparations. And there's the, the, the immediate impact of what happens in terms of wars. And then there's, there's the aftermath, you know, the remnants of war. So we need to think more broadly about war. It's not just something that happens as one particular incident. Week three is called what imperial militaries do 
uh, to the earth back home. So this is this is pretty much looking at the the preparations for war and what it does. Uh, and in, in this particular week, week, we look at how testing and war preparations are contaminating uh, the water supplies, particularly in the US is one example that we draw on. And then the fourth week is called what nuclear weapons have done and could do to the earth and it could do to the people and the planet. So that's week four. Week five is called how this horror is hidden and maintained. So um, it looks at, you know, some of the arguments that are made to to um, keep, for example, militarism out of um, investigations around, uh, you know, their, their, their impact on the planet as one example. And week six, we always try, although first and foremost, our courses are an educational experience and educational journey, we always try and ensure that that participants leave the course with ideas, tools, techniques, way, ways of thinking about how to try and engage in action moving forward. So we always use this kind of idea of we hope that our time together on the course leads to more time together in the future. And what I would say is that we have a really good track record of once people sign up for one of the courses, they tend to come back, you know, and we tend to keep working with them moving forward. So we, we, we uh, appear to be doing something right. Um, and, and actually, with regards to this week, this this um this course which is coming up so some of the facilitators we're really fortunate again to have some great facilitators as one example dr serena clark who's um phd in peace and conflict studies doing her postdoc um a rotary global scholar from the us currently in ireland and another example is um Elizabeth, um, who's also a Rotary Peace Fellow. She's working for the United Nations in Tokyo, Japan. Dr. Michael Chu as well, another PhD, who's a sustainability expert from Australia, also a Rotary Peace Fellow. We have some great Rotary Peace Fellows. Another example, uh, Henrik, who is originally from, and this was a great kind of, it's great to have Henrik. So Henry was in the military for 10 years in Brazil. He's been posted in Ukraine. He's done other work in, in many other different countries countries and quote his words I have been in the military picking up the remnants of war in different countries so it was super cool to have Henrik you know with us uh, he's now doing his PhD in Sweden um, and then of course we have our wonderful colleagues Greta and um, Rachel who are for week six that will be looking at uh, kind of organizing and what 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 can be done next so hopefully that gives uh, an example and we've got Stephanie Stephanie is from a wonderful institute in Germany called Potsdam Institute, um, which are really, really good in terms of climate change. So we're quite happy that we got her involved as well. So what a wonderful lineup. Yeah, um, we've noticed that you also have uh, Rivera Sun as a part of this. Is that correct? Not in this, not in this course, but we have done in the past. We've invited her for, um, I think I'm just trying to think, yeah, for either War Abolition 201 or 101. Rivera is great. and She was in 101, I believe, I believe so. 101. Let's explore this idea that the world is getting more peaceful a little further. And Joe Giddens, you, as you pointed out, Stephen Pinker's book, Better Angels of Our Nature, documents the fact that the world is gradually, but surely, becoming more peaceful with a diminished number of people dying at the hands of other humans. So do you, Leah and Phil, truly believe though that a world beyond war is possible? And if that possibility exists, what's your estimate in terms of the kind of time it's gonna to take to accomplish a world without war? Well, I, I think, 
yes, I believe that a world beyond war is possible. And I, I would have to, to keep doing the, this work. And, and I, I, I fully support that. The, the biggest hurdle, I believe, for creating a world beyond war is convincing people that it can, it can be done, uh, just as you, as you asked me. And the reason people um, don't necessarily believe it could happen is because they have bought into the myths of war, the, the myths that we've always had war, or the myths as part of human nature, the myths that it's, uh, it's necessary or it's justified. I mean, if war, if war were natural, then we would be fighting each other all the time. Soldiers would not have to be trained in, in boot camp to kill other people. There wouldn't be anything as post-traumatic stress disorder if war were natural. So once you understand that it's a possibility and you believe that, then you can take the steps to make it end. And earlier you talked about what, what keeps me, um, uh, gives me hope for the future. And I would just like to, to touch on that word hope. Hope is a passive thing. Nothing changes due solely to hope. Women did not get the right to vote because Elizabeth Cady Stanton hoped that, uh, that, they, that she would. So optimism is different from hope. And optimism requires engagement. It requires participation. And, and so the things that make me optimistic, well, look, your radio show is, is something that makes me optimistic, that, that's an action that you're doing to engage in creating a world beyond war. Now, uh, what an estimate for amount of time, I, I, I can't answer that question. Sure. Oh, wait, um, I, I did want to add one more thing. Uh, you talked about the number of people dead from war uh, de decreasing significantly as a, as a prime indicator that the world is moving more towards peace. And I would contend that there's a, there's a, I don't think the number of war dead uh, is a, really a particularly good measure of whether war is ending. In World War I, 90% of the casualties were combatants. Today's wars, 90% of the civilians are, are, the, are the victims. And I think this, this indicates a, a huge shift in uh, the way countries think about war and the sacrifices that, they're, that they seem to be willing to make to, to, you know, to, to, with people's, people's lives. The other thing is, how are you counting the deaths? Are you counting the people who have died from lack of medication because of economic sanctions? Are you, are you counting the people who, whose deaths were created by starvation from, from being uh, you know, in a war zone? Or you know, how are you measuring the deaths and whose deaths are they? And we know that the United States has killed thousands of people with drones, but they don't even know who they are. They, they don't have a record. They don't care. And even if they cared, it's impossible to find out for sure because the people they're killing by drones are way up in the mountains and very rural, very remote areas where it, even if you wanted to verify who you had killed, it's impossible. So I, I just, I would be cautious about using that as saying, well, look, here's, here's evidence. We're obviously getting more peaceful because fewer people are being killed. I, I think that's, that's, you know, I just take that with a, a grain of salt and that there are lots of other indicators. It was what I wanted to kind of say, Leas, I think touched on some of the things that he wanted to say. So, so St Stephen Pinker, but not just Stephen Pinker. So there's others, uh, jo Joshua Goldstein that put out a book called Winning, Winning War or, or Winning the War on War. And Stephen Pinker and Joshua, they both kind 
kind of argued that there's been this historical kind of decline with regards to both violence and war. But the question is, okay, well, one, how we're defining war, how we're defining violence. How do you go about, you know, measuring or calculating the amount of, um, you know, that people die um, during war, before, during and after, you know, is... And, and actually, we've, we've become a lot more sophisticated in terms of social science, in terms of capturing numbers now. So there's one thing. Another thing, the um, uh, two, two articles or two, two pieces of work in particular, which are worth checking out. Uh, one's called Dead Wrong, Battle Deaths, Military, Medicine and Exaggerated Reports on War's Demise by um, Dr. Faisal, and she basically argues that actually I think that the claim is, is quite a lot overstated. And one of the things that we need to be aware of now, and it's actually touched on in Stephen Pinker's book, The Enlightenment, we've made massive progress in terms of medicine. Okay, so that obviously has a factor to play in terms of how many people were dying in World War One, World War Two, and compared to now. So, so that is, you know, so it's, that needs to really be factored in as well. Um, so I just want to kind of, yeah, highlight what, what Leah said. And then another one, John Gray is another one who's wrote quite a lot critiquing um, Stephen Pinker's overstated argument that, that war and, and violence is, is in decline as well. So um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of chip in with that. And Phil, you reminded me of something else when you said uh, who dies before, during and after war. In after war, here's two examples that relate to the environment and problems that, that, that are created by war in the environment. And one, uh, a great example is Agent Orange that was used uh, prolifically in, in Vietnam and Southeast Asia uh, has killed you know, thousands of people after, after the war is supposedly over. Depleted uranium in Iraq, uh, depleted uranium is, is used, uh, it's, a, it's a byproduct of, of, it's a byproduct of creating nuclear energy is this something they, that they use to create weapons because it's very, very heavy and it is very, it's impenetrable. So it's used by the United States to armor vehicles. It's used in ammunition, uh, the tips of which the, are, 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 you can go right through uh, something uh, like, like a knife through butter. But the depleted uranium that's expelled when these weapons hit goes into the atmosphere. It goes into the sand. It goes, it moves in clouds and it will be there for a million years. And, and so now there are these huge numbers of cancer and grotesque, uh, I mean, you can't even bear to look at uh, birth deformities. So all of these things that war uh, does, um, you, you can't just count the people who were shot or, or died from shrapnel wounds or, or, or that kind of thing. There's so many more ramifications. Yeah, and, and even if you think about, you know, the number of suicides of veterans, you know, uh, what's going on today, you know, far outweighs the, the, the number of people that are killed, you know, in direct battlefield, let's say. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good point that. Yeah, so determining the number of casualties, both human and environmental, uh, pretty complex analysis. The journal Armed Conflict Location and Event Data, Eclat, in their article, uh, entitled Current Data Files, retrieved April 10th, 2019, lists three major conflicts that have caused more than 10,000 deaths per year in 2019 and 2018. 14 conflicts caused between 1,000 and 10,000 deaths in 2019 and 18, and 29 minor conflicts that caused between 100 and 1,000 deaths per year during the same period. Those numbers 
are disturbing, but they are eclipsed by the 38 million who died in World War One, the 75 million who died in World War Two, almost 2 million died in the Korean War. That was article penned by Omar uh, Zalit Murray, uh, Christopher J.L. Gedadu, Emmanuel, mm-hmm. in 2008, entitled 50 Years of Violent War Deaths from Vietnam to Bosnia, analyzes the data World Health Survey program and published in the British Journal of Medicine documented, according to these historians, compared to the 20th century, the human race is making progress in terms of diminishing deaths as a result of war, at least compared to the casualties suffered thus far in the early 21st century. So the question is, is this extraordinary decline in the number of casualties? Is it an anomaly or is there a reason for this decline? Can you identify that? I, I don't think I'd have to look some more details about that particular article before coming on, commenting on that one. But, you know, one one indicator is uh, the human cost, another which we've spoke about. Another indicator is the environmental cost, which I think we spoke about as well. Another indicator also, another connection is obviously the economic cost, you know, which we haven't spoke about. So, um Research shows that violence and, and of course, the, the ultimate version of violence is war. Violence is costing the global economy 14 trillion, 14.5 trillion, if you follow the Institute for Economics and Peace. So that is money that obviously we need, particularly right now, to fight against the COVID war that we're, we're in, if we want to call it that, but also other uh, productive activities such as education and health and and Leah can talk a lot about you know divestment and 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 perhaps other things and and closing foreign bases which is something we haven't spoke about you know but that's two kind of other pillars of our work as well how do we go one is divestment how do we go about divesting or moving the money away from the war system to more productive activities and the other one that Leah works specifically on with with regards to foreign bases because it's uh, you know foreign bases is something that prop up the war system. So Bill are you saying these costs are the reason that war and debts from war have diminished in the 21st century? I'm always reluctant to give one overall answer. I think that it's like a system. There's many different factors. Um, I think one is that um, we're we're getting better. We're understanding the science of peace more. So that that has a that has a role to play, too. I think there's, um, you know, been an increase in activism. I think if you look around the world right now, in particular, young people are quite quite active. Um, You know, that would be another reason. Three, if you go to Stephen Pinker's book, he basically his argument for progress is that is science and reason. You know, although uh, this might be interesting for Leah to hear, actually, but although activism has played a role overall, the reason why we've made most progress over these years is because of science and reason, because of, you know, uh, the reason why we don't have so much famine around the world, for example, is not because people took to the streets and were organizing and, uh, and, and uh, engaging in action. It's because scientists come up with um, fertilizer to try and feed more people around the world. You know, that's, that's his argument, that's Stephen Pinker's argument. So he would make an argument that science and reason the reason why we've made so much progress and then that could be an argument for we've had this the science of war for a long time and part of the peace studies field part of the idea behind the peace studies field is that my gosh we need a science of peace to kind of counteract the over focus on war so i think that that has a role to play as well i would like to think that the peace building field has had a role to play in terms of you know um broadening awareness letting people know 
uh, that actually nonviolence works. You know, that's that would be I would like to think that that's played a role, but not the only role. There's so many different factors like war, conflict, violence. It's, it's, it's a complex system, you know, so we can't put it down to one particular point, I would say. Well, Leah, you, you mentioned the uh, United Nations earlier when it was established, 1945, so forth. Uh, it was mainly, you know, purposes to diminish war and international conflict, but it's not been terribly effective in, in that area. Uh, aside from that, it's not mentioned the effects of war on, on the environment. So do you have some ideas on uh, what needs to change in terms of uh, the organization of the United Nations and ideas that... Uh, that could achieve more uh, accountability? Well, the United Nations is deeply flawed. And I think everybody understands that, even the people in the United Nations understand that. And they, um, and they, and they talk about how, how different ways things need to be changed. I, I think, to me, the most egregious problem with the United Nations is the, the veto power that the five permanent members of the Security Council have. And, you know, ironically, the people who have the power, that the countries that have the power, the five countries, United States, the UK, Russia, China, and France, the reason they have the power is because they were victorious in World War II. So that it kind of is, is re- rewarding the people who, who came out on top after war, and let's give them some, some, some power that they have gained something from war uh, by that. So I'm not... I think that is completely wrong and it's not democratic and it's so unfair. And I believe the United States uses the United Nations just as it uses NATO as a personal tool. Uh, you know, the, you said that the United Nations hasn't been uh, very effective. Part of the reason is that we don't have we don't have strong in, enforcement mechanisms in place. I mentioned the International Criminal Court. Well, the United States has not is not a party to the ICC. Two other countries who the only the only two other countries who have explicitly said we will not join the ICC are Israel and Sudan, North Sudan. So, I mean, this shows you the kind of attitude the United States has towards resolving conflicts nonviolently. And the, the United Nations Charter also says that people, that, that the countries must receive uh, permission from the Security Council before they can engage in, in warfare. But there's this caveat that in Article 51 that says that countries have an inherent right of self-defense which is the part that the United States quotes, and they leave off the part at the end that says if armed, if armed attack is occurring on, on that country, it has an inherent yeah. right for self-defense. So this, this is a, a big, big loophole. Another big problem with the UN is that it's not, uh, smaller countries are not uh, adequately represented and they don't have a, a significant voice in, in what happens. Um, the Security Council uh, changes, the membership changes, and it's disproportionately made up of countries uh, uh, in West, uh, Western countries. So uh, it, there are things absolutely need to be changed, but it's the best thing we have right now. And I've seen plans that people have talked about creating something completely different or trying to modify what we have. But um, the fact that it exists at all is quite remarkable. And, uh, you know, and you can't prove a negative either, uh, Jamie, you can't prove that uh, the United Nations 
hasn't. I mean, it's, perhaps it has stopped conflict because there was negotiation or because nobody received the yeah. permission from the Security Council. So we don't know that it hasn't been that, that ineffective. And then the UN also has addressed lots of things that, uh, like sustainability and environment and ch- children's rights and all these other things that are uh, related to war, but they've made great progress in other areas as well and have contributed a lot. If, can I just like touch on what Leah said because um, about the United Nations, because I was kind of nodding my head. I just wanted to kind of add something with regards to that. Um, I think if there were, is one organization that, that we should be focusing on in terms of can make the biggest impact in terms of supporting peace in the world, you know, that would be the United Nations. And I think it's worth seeing both the positives and perhaps, you know, the, the not so positives. Um, so Leah spoke about, you know, many examples, and these are in our, in the book um, that, that we spoke about earlier, a global security system in terms of veto. One thing that isn't there, and one thing I just like to kind of think about is that the way it's the way in which we think about bringing about peace okay so if you think about the united nations and such a humongous kind of organization you know in so many different countries and things like this the united nations by by its pure definition and and the way in which it's set up is set up in such a way that looks at top-down approach to peace building where if you look more recently there's real arguments now that actually that top-down approaches are not working you know and what we need is bottom-up approaches or grassroots approaches where we work with people on the ground. So the the issue there with the United Nations is that they have their headquarters or have their offices in different, different locations. They're often unable to kind of connect with people on the ground and often people on the ground don't really trust the United Nations that much either because of things that have happened so it's just a little something just to add in terms of you know whose knowledge is needed to kind of bring about peace whose ideas you know who's needed in this peace work to bring to bring about change and it's not just top down if we're following the United Nations we also need kind of the bottom up as, as well approach so I just wanted to kind of you know offer that as well as another kind of addition to the strengths and perhaps potential challenges of the United Nations. In 2012, you went went with a delegation to Pakistan to meet with victims of U.S. drone strikes. You've talked about those drone strikes, the creator of the Drone Strikes Victims Quilt Project. In 2013, a Washington report, Middle East Affairs, reported that in St. Louis, Missouri, you spent some time talking and rallying with Iowa's activists who opposed the Obama administration's assassination program, the drone program. At one point, you said, and this is a quote from the Washington Post, drones are killing people, thousands of people. Most of them we know are innocent. Reports show that only 2% of the people we've killed with drones are high-level al-Qaeda operatives. Our government denies these people have been killed. We are creating enemies faster than we are killing them. What were you wanting to accomplish in St. Louis? Well, the delegation to Pakistan was organized by Code Pink, and there were about 25 of us. And the purpose was to meet with uh, firsthand with the victims of drone strikes. And I tell you that meeting with people, just as yesterday, hearing the stories from the Memorial Day from all over the world, meeting with the people, holding 
pieces of shrapnel, uh, part of the missile casings of these these 500 pound missiles that are that are launched. It was so it was transformative. It was a I had a visceral sort of reaction to that, and I came back home and I said I have to do something to try to recognize these this problem and remember and and acknowledge the deaths of these civilian people that have done nothing wrong. And so the idea to create the drone school project came uh, to be, and the idea is that um, each square of uh, a block that goes into a quilt is contains the name of a of someone who's been killed by a drone strike. And I've sort of asked people in my network from all over to create these blocks. Uh, and then they sent them to me and I put them, turned them into a quilt. And this became a traveling exhibit that, that went all around the world. And it actually is still being exhibited. And it contained also information about the civilians killed and that kind of thing. You know, I think it affected people when they could see this, the names and the, the quilt, which is kind of a, a human sort of things. So it's not just a list of names or it, it you know it humanizes the, the the death by naming the person it is intended to be an educational thing but also also just an, an honor or some kind of recognition of the civilians that are being killed by the US war machine yeah Barack Obama claims that there were less people that died as a result of the drone strikes than there were would have been had there been an all-out attack on those uh, villages so I don't know if that's correct or not but yeah yeah, the drone strikes were <laughs> devastating and not a lot of people know about them. Well, that's absurd to say that, you know, that there are less fatalities, that, you know, the less fatalities that they didn't bomb anybody. I mean, so that's, 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 that's crazy. And, you know, when Obama was running the program, that's when they had the signature strikes. And that's when he let the CIA decide who was going to be killed in Pakistan, Afghanistan. And the signature strikes were just the victim, the potential victim was a male and of military age, whatever that means, and was carrying a weapon. Well, the people in this, this area, they carry weapons all the time. Americans carry weapons all the time. But so many people were targeted because of this signature that these people fit the, the description of what a terrorist is. So, I mean, I just think it's preposterous to say we save lives by droning people. Uh, I mean, people say that about nuclear bombs. Oh, we saved lives, lives in the wrong way, a long run. Well, that's just crazy. We would have saved lives if we hadn't dropped a bomb that killed hundreds of thousands of people. So it, it it's you can't save lives by taking lives. That's absurd. Bill, you are education director for World Beyond War. Your position clearly involves international attention. Through the magic of Zoom, we're, talk, we're talking with you today from Bolivia. You're working in that nation as we speak. And give us a brief description of the problems you're, you're working with people in, in Bolivia now. Bolivia in particular is kind of overlooked in terms of peace work, in terms of conflict work, because a lot of the attention obviously goes to Colombia and Venezuela and things like this. But Bolivia has a lot of issues and Bolivia has probably been hit among the most in terms of the colonization. And actually, as a result, is probably, I would say, one of the leaders in terms of the pushback against colonization because they had the first you know, indigenous president and things like this. So that's one that's one reason. So I was really interested in coming back to Bolivia. And so I've spent more than four years on the ground here, so, you know, over the last 10 years, wrote a book called Peace and Conflict in Bolivia. So um, it's, it's, you know, quite widely used across here in Bolivia. Currently, we're working on a project that will train 100 young people uh, around the country. And because of the because of Zoom, it's opening up. I'm in a place called La Paz, which in Spanish is the peace 
we were just going to work with uh, university students in this one location, but it's opened it up to the whole of the country. And so it's, um, yeah, exciting. World Beyond War offers online book club. Most uh, recently, as your authors uh, donated their time, could you share some uh, information with us about the World Beyond War book club? Yeah, happy to. This is a relatively new uh, initiative that started last year. And uh, the first two book clubs were around David Swanson's books. The most recent one was called Leaving World War II Behind. But it's more than just promoting the book. It's actually engaging in a conversation about the content of the book. So the courses are four weeks and the author is the facilitator of the discussion. Other book clubs coming up and books that we will be talking about in June, there are two clubs. And both of them, unfortunately, are sold out. So in July is Rivera's son, as you mentioned. Uh, She is on our advisory board, and she will be talking about her book, The Way Between. In August, we have Anne Wright, retired from the the Army and the Diplomatic Service, the State Department. She she left there in in protest of of the uh, imminent attack on Iraq in 2003. Anyway, she wrote a book called Descent Voices of conscience, which outlines uh, several different people and and their acts of conscience. September is Kathy Kelly, and she's been to Afghanistan more than two dozen times, and she's traveled all over the world trying to prevent war. She she went to Iraq uh, before the shock and awe travesty um, as a human shield. Her book is called Bending the Ark, and that is in September. In October is Professor David Vine. He is a professor of anthropology at American University. University, and his specialty is U.S. foreign military bases. His first book was called Base Nation, and the most recent book that will be the book club is called The United States of War. In November is Stephen Vittoria, and his book is called Murder Incorporated. So we don't have one for December because December is always a very busy month, but really exciting uh, books, as you can see. You can go to our, our website and enroll now for, for any of those books and get your seats secured. And, and so you can be a part of that. Give us your website again. Worldbeyondward.org. Okay. Leah, Phil, we're unfortunately very close to being out of time. So do you want to make a final comment for us? Yeah, I think my final thing I'd like to emphasize is just that we all need to take part to abolishing war, to getting rid of war. And even if I would like to urge people to step outside their comfort zones and do something that's maybe a little bit difficult for them. And if you've never done anything, no active activism at all, then start. And I think let to the editor is a very easy place to start. And perhaps you just stand on a corner with a sign and, and publicly sh- you know, show your, your, your position. But people need to be engaged. And that's the only way I can stay optimistic, as I mentioned before. So World Beyond War is a number of initiatives. Please come to our website. Uh, we didn't mention this, but please sign our Declaration of Peace. World Beyond War, as we mentioned, is an international thing. And, and, and that's the only way it can be effective. Uh, to build our network, we ask people to take a pledge, which basically says that I commit to engaging in nonviolent methods to end war. So I would urge anybody who's listening to this, please go to our website and add your name to those 75,000 people. And you will see many ways you can engage with World Beyond War and and learn more about abolishing war forever. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both uh, to our listeners. We are out of time for our Solutions to Violent Conversation today. Our guest 
guests today are Leah Bolger and Phil Gittens of the National Organization World Beyond War. Thank you once again for joining us today and help us explore more solutions to violence. As your hosts, we are Jim Johnson and Jamie McMillan, bringing you more discoveries for solutions to violence. Be with you.